The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, and welcome to Quantum Business Insights. I'm your host, Olivia Parr-Rood. Each week on Quantum Business Insights, I explore the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world. And my hope is that through dialogue and inquiry, we'll discover new approaches and perspectives that can help us all be more successful in our business. The topic of today's show is our evolving business landscape. To explore this topic with me is Stephen McHugh, an extremely talented business visionary. But before I formally introduce Stephen, I'd like to take a few minutes to share some of the ideas behind the creation of this show and what inspired me to take this path. If you're familiar with my work, then you know that I've been working in data mining and business intelligence for over 20 years. That has been my main focus, but I've always had this passion for human development and personal growth. I even thought about studying psychology at one time, but I had a young family and I needed to be practical, so I decided to take advantage of my math skills and get a degree in statistics. I started my career as a statistician in the early 90s building predictive models for a small, aggressive credit card bank. It was really exciting and it was really stressful. The whole industry was booming. In the first six years, I worked for four different financial institutions and I experienced and witnessed several mergers and acquisitions. In each case, I noticed that during the height of the chaos, morale just collapsed. The business suffered. And at that time, there was a huge demand for people with credit card experience. So at the first sign of uncertainty, some of the best talent just took off. And those who stayed were often left in the dark, and everything went downhill. And I saw this pattern over and over. After years of that, I realized I didn't want to be working for a large corporation anymore, so I went into consulting. And around the same time, I started speaking at data conferences. And most of the time, I talked about data mining But every once in a while, I'd slip in a topic like the importance of good communication or how to manage change or how to be more creative. And these topics were hugely popular. But the problem was people didn't know how to take them back and really integrate them into their workplace. So I kind of let that go. And in the early 2000s, I had what I would call an aha experience. I saw the movie, What the Bleep Do We Know? I know it sounds crazy, but it was a really interesting movie because it suggested a different way of looking at the world through a new science. And it seemed to explain some of what I was experiencing. And it also, it resonated with my personal growth experience. So I started reading everything I could get my hands on. I learned about systems theory and quant 
complex adaptive systems. And they tell us that if we allow structure to emerge from chaos, it'll be more adaptable and more resilient. And this fascinated me. But I kept wondering, how can I apply it to my work? And then a few years later, I read Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat, and I had an insight. As Friedman puts it, the world is going digital, virtual, and global. And I started to see where the increased use of data and technology brought many benefits, but it also introduced a level of complexity and put us in a state of almost constant change, not to mention the global marketplace. Now, as a data miner, I love when I can identify patterns. So the science model started to explain what I was experiencing. And if I was able to tolerate some uncertainty and allow order to emerge, we could all thrive in this new digital, virtual, global economy. So as I thought about this, I realized something. It would only work if we engage and empower the people within the organization. For example, things are changing too quickly for top management to make all the decisions. By the time a question goes up the chain of command and back down, the opportunity is often lost. So I started to see the big picture and how my two areas of interest, data mining and human development, were actually connected and coming together and that they had an effect on each other. And I experienced my own version of order emerging out of chaos. So starting today, I want to invite you to join me each week as I engage in deep conversations with thought leaders that have developed or worked with these theories. And as I, I want to draw attention to those systems and processes that take advantage of our most valuable asset, our human capital. So for my first show, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Stephen McHugh. He has a broad background that bridges many aspects of business that I feel are important for success today. Let me tell you a little bit about Stephen. He's a business coach and advisor, a psychotherapist and mentor, a master trainer, facilitator, and a change management consultant. He is currently CIO of Idea Champions and CEO of Unison Business Development, a corporate strategic planning consultancy with clients representing the high tech, banking, insurance, manufacturing, healthcare, and telecommunications industries. Stephen, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia. Thanks so much. You're welcome. So to get started, let me ask you, when comparing companies today with those, say, 20, 30 years ago, one of the big changes I've seen is that they seem to be more customer-focused. They're going after this single view of the customer. What has been your experience when helping companies make this change? It's a, What I've seen is a very big cultural shift to actually put the customer at the center of the business and to be able to then bring in the the cultural shift, the systems and the processes to actually make that real. And in in many instances it's taken more than one or two attempts to make that right over up four, five, seven years to actually get that customer centric model and make it real. So what do you think is the biggest challenge? What are the barriers that make it take so long and make it so difficult? Well, the, 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 one of the obvious ones is silos and mm. the fact that prior to actually investing in the kinds of um, IT software and, and hardware necessary and the training necessary mm-hmm. to, to have an actual 
CRM, you've got customers stuck in every sort of spreadsheet all around the country and uh, no integration around the data for the customer and no um, really thought or concern for the impact on the customer with lots and lots of people having different vectors to the customer. Oh, boy, yeah. at At the process level, it's a problem, let alone at the people level that you were describing that's so important. Yeah, that's interesting because I was familiar with a bank that did some research to see how many separate databases they had. Talk about silos. And there were over 2,000 separate databases. Some were just spreadsheets on people's computer, but everybody was using them. So what is, uh, what is one of the challenges of just the long-term view? Seems like with short-term accountability of companies, does that create challenges? Well, when you start to actually get your people working together around um, a customer-centric model or even around an innovation model, it is just a big culture change. People actually have to work together differently. Mm -hmm. Collaboration, uh, how you handle... Uh, data, who owns what around the customer or around the product or service. Um, These kinds of things are a big, big shift over the past 10 to 20 years with the way people have to work together to actually get the job done and compete in in the global market. So it sounds like it would be really important for the leaders to agree to this, and, and maybe so, how how important is the role of leadership in this kind of a change? Oh, it's paramount. It's huge. Um, at some point, uh, about twenty five years ago, I I completely gave up uh, trying to do bottom up change. Mm. It was way too frustrating. And really, part of the issue here is what. What is, what's the impetus to change at all in a business or an organization? Mm, yeah. And you've got, you know, there are two of them. The main one is fear. That's the one where you suddenly somebody wakes up and goes, oh, my goodness, the competition is breathing down our neck and we're still doing what we've been doing for a long time. You know, it's one, mm. uh, one CEO, client of mine put it, the threat of hanging sharpens the mind. <laughs> and I thought, ooh, but yeah, there's that when it's obvious and mm-hmm. the the threat is imminent, you can usually get senior management to agree on it and then align the employees who are, who mean everything to the change because they're the ones who actually implement. Right. So what are some of the other impetuses for change then? Well, I like to say if... Necessity is the mother of invention. Inspiration is the father of invention. So while it's very obvious when the threat of hanging is looming, um, when the trends that are drivers take time to develop, by the time everyone's red flags go up, um, it can be be too late to avoid Mm -hmm. the big and nasty shifts in the market share and the stock price and so on. And um, there, there are a number of examples of, of that, which is to say, okay, who's actually watching the competition? And some, usually there are some people going, 
I see this. Uh, they're raising the red flag, and mm-hmm. nobody's listening. Oh, we're fine. We've always done it this way. And so it's, it's this less obvious um, trend watching that actually can, can be an inspiration to change before the absolute necessity hits you in the head with a two-by-four. So do you have any examples of companies that kind of missed the boat because they ignored those, those warnings? Mm, sure. I, um, you may have seen these some years ago, 7-Eleven, the corner convenience market that's everywhere, and woke up one day, the senior management, to find that uh, convenience stores were springing up beside every corner gas station. Now, you could get gas and also go in and get a gallon of milk a loaf of bread, um, and this just spread so quickly. And they were, you know, the Seven Eleven leadership were, by their own admission, were asleep at the wheel, having been lulled by years of having many thousands of stores, and but no structure around watching the marketplace and the competition, and believing that they were just going to be the leader forever. Um, that, that, that kind of uh, situation happens again and again as businesses mature and uh, people get stayed in their ways and decide, well, you know, change is too much trouble. Mm. Yeah, it can be really scary, I think, for some people, especially if it's been going along really well for years and years, then they get comfortable. And I think one of the biggest impediments to being to change is that people fear it they 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 don't want to get outside of their comfort zone they they like things to be predictable and expected and so do you have any examples of companies that perhaps changed as a result of inspiration <laughs> well sure um and i think that it, it is inspiring that actually a management team can take that visionary leadership uh, role and direction. For me, um, I was working with uh, a chlorine manufacturer, and I mean, you're looking at a, a uh, group of people. They had, I don't know, four or five plants all around the United States, and having actually staff there, the average tenure was over 20 years with the people who are on the plant floor. So that's wow. not much change going on there. And they realized that they had um, an opportunity to become the um, low-cost supplier at the bottom of the next turn of the chlorine cycle. Wow. Can now, you just hold that? that when they were we on to... top, they were getting ready to plan for the bottom of the cycle. Not just coasting, right? Yeah. Hey, we need to take a quick break. So can you hold that thought and we'll be back in a few minutes? Happy to. Thank you. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in every week for the Ellis Martin Report. Our program will bring you the news and information that you need each week. We look at publicly traded small and mid-cap companies from a variety of sectors. We'll talk to key people in the industry to bring you the foreground and background of new and up-and-comers for potential investment. Please remember, invest only at your own risk. The Ellis Martin Report is meant for information purposes only. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network you are tuned in to quantum business insights with olivia parr rood to reach the program with questions or comments please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com that's show at oliviagroup.com now, back to Quantum Business Insights. So, Stephen, you were giving us a great example of a company that changed as a result of inspiration. So, please continue with that. Yeah, so working with a group of visionary leaders who are at the top of their business cycle in what's basically a commodity, so it has long seven, ten-year cycles. Um, so, while here they are making the most money, actually inspiring their people to do the change so that they could be the low-cost leader at the bottom of the next downturn. This is Ooh. rare. And yeah. also it was really powerful because they, had, they knew the only way to do that was to automate. And, but they were <laughs> in a position where there weren't any computers on the floor in the plants. No one had any skills. And so we were visioning this and brainstorming this, and the idea came up from the, the leaders to give act, every employee's family a computer and a phone line um, and classes. Wow. Uh, such that then they, then they put everybody's pay stub online and stopped doing paper pay stubs and did direct deposit. So this is huh. right from an HR point of view, training, but also what happened, of course, is that the kids and uh, many of the spouses start using the machine, and then they're going to classes, and the, the, you know, the, the, the workers are going, okay, now I've, I'm going to learn this thing. 
<laughs> and they did. Very smart. And <laughs> they went in very few years from nothing, literally, in terms of a corporate capacity around um, automation to full SAP automation and plant controls. Wow. And succeeded in their goal to be the low-cost provider at the bottom of the next downturn. Unions decertified because they started getting people into sharing the profits. I mean, it was very, very visionary and conscious and worked, and they are now the premier um, producer. Wow. So the, 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 the secondary piece of this, of course, is that the, the people who were, you know, the high potential employees who came on during this time, that they were, we involved them in leadership training and also in leadership responsibility for implementing these visionary ideas, and now they're running the company 15 years later. That's brilliant. Wow. That's this visionary piece around saying, well, what are we inspired to do, and how can we bring that inspiration to everyone in the company? sets up a very long-term success cycle. Yeah, so when you approached the leaders, were they all pretty much open to this or were there some that struggled? There were some um, and there usually are. You know, you get a senior management team of 12, 14 people. Most of them are men, usually. (laughs) Mm. And, you know, (laughs) uh, my rule is that the CEO, the CFO, and the HR person have to be 100% on board and everybody oh. else, 80% of everybody else has to be 80% or better on board. Um, otherwise, don't begin uh, an, a change effort. Otherwise, it'll be undermined and fail. Wow. So have you started processes with companies where they were not all on board and then it did fail? I actually started uh, once and didn't get very far with a... Um, an energy production company that shall remain nameless. <laughs> and that, you know, I was uh, actually brought in through the strategic planning department, which was new because this very large um, electricity manufacturer had brought in, had just done a merger and brought this guy in, and he went from being the CFO of one company to being the head of strategic planning, which is you know, no P&L, mm. kind of lower on the totem pole. And I had this very large long-term contract, and we could not get an appointment with the CEO. Wow. No matter what we did, and we couldn't get people to meet. And he came to me, the, the, um, this guy who was the head of the strategic planning, he said, what should I do? And I said, you know, if I were you, I would take my golden parachute and jump out of the plane. <laughs> really not getting any traction here. And I, I left on a Friday. I came back on a Monday, and he was gone. Wow. <laughs> and my very large contract <laughs> disappeared. Oh, my. <laughs> but that is how it has to go that way. Right. You don't right. start unless you're committed to finish because it's just too depressing, demoralizing, too expensive to actually start a change effort that you're not committed to. It always works if you work the process, mm-hmm. if you involve the people. 
Right. If you don't or won't, don't start. Yeah. Well, so I also think about how a lot of the traditional companies have a lot harder time with change versus, say, the new technology companies that sort of grow up with people that are already used to the technology and used to collaborating and used to fast-paced change. Do you see that as just a real contrast, which is maybe explains why the technology companies can grow and, and profit so much faster than, say, old insurance companies or uh, manufacturing companies and things like that. Is that a fair statement? I believe so, and it's in lots of industries, um, mm. you know, not, not just in, in the high-tech ones. I think that the, the one, one example of this is that uh, during the divestiture of AT&T, you know, at Idea Champions, we, we were the premier new product services brainstorming consultants, and we were working with groups trying to, you know, figure out how to help AT&T go from a monopoly to a competitor, right? Mm, and wow. <laughs> so that's huge. And mm-hmm. they had, you know, long distance was the primary revenue generator, and they had actually it structured it into three silos. Uh, run by three men who were constantly feuding and vying for more power and trying to get bigger budgets and usual politics. And, you know, we just, no matter how many new long-distance plans were brainstormed and painstakingly developed into a plan, only one ever made it through the convoluted gauntlet of decision-making that they had and then that was wow. poorly implemented. Meanwhile, hmm. several managers left and established MCI Family and Friends, which you may remember was a very unique long-distance plan. MCI was a new competitor in the field, and it took yeah. over 20, at least over 25 to 30% of the market share from AT&T away in a very short time. Wow, and, and I think they, they even subcontracted the AT&T lines or something, right? Like they could just, all they had to do was set up the of business. Because change in the laws, and, uh, but they took advantage of this stodgy, calcified structure um, and this, this lack of agility that, you know, really AT&T at the time was really stuck with. And those people knew that if they created a plan that spanned all three silos, those three people would never be able to agree on how to um, come after and change to come after the market share they were losing. And they were right. Wow. So this, well, is, this is where I think your hypothesis that it is the people and the, the, the leadership that actually make or break a, um, the evolution of a company so that it doesn't just mature, calcify, and die. Right. Well, we're about time for another break. So when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about leadership and your concept of visionary leadership as soon as we return. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Business owners, do you run your business or does your business run you? Put yourself on the road to success by tuning in to Success Unchained with hosts Anthony and Julie McGloin. 
At last, discover how to overcome your biggest challenges, take control of your business, and achieve the results you've always dreamed of. Find out how with our resident master business coach and world-class guest experts. Transform the nine key areas of your business and unchain your true potential. Tune in Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Our workplace is dynamically changing. How do you stay ahead of the curve with respect to learning and training? Tune in every week to The Future of Workforce Learning and Development with host Pamela Robinson. You'll learn about real-world strategies, solutions, and resources that will showcase these changes and keep you ready for what's next. The Future of Workforce Learning and Development is heard live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. So when we left off, we were talking a little bit about the importance of leadership and and getting the teams involved, and you brought up the concept of visionary leadership. Can you expand on that a little bit and maybe give some examples of where you've seen that in practice? Sure. Um, love to do that. One, one great example uh, was when uh, Zurich American Insurance acquired home insurance some years ago. Um, and there, there was, because it wasn't exactly a friendly merger, <laughs> there was no shared vision to bring together two really very different styles of management. Mm. You know, Zurich, America, Zurich is really, think Swiss watchmakers, right? Uh, right. Very precise and stepwise. And the home insurance people team, the leadership team, think Wild West gunslingers. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they really kind of rock and rolled with with their style. And they naturally had a very hard time coming together after the merger. So they, they called us in for vision mapping and strategic planning. And we went through this visionary leadership process, uh, got the senior team together. Um, we had finally agreed on what was then a five-year vision of success in which all the, well, I'll say most, certainly 80% or more of the leadership team was on board. Nonetheless, everybody had been through the conversation of what, what it was going to take, agreed on where they were and how they were going to get to that vision we mapped it out on a 12-foot-long piece of paper. 
wow. and then you know began a long term implementation plan. But mm-hmm. this kind of process, this vision mapping, really is successful in bringing leadership teams together with a deep understanding um, and a deep commitment to the changes they want to make. And they, see, they know the reasons why, and then it's up to them to you know, roll it out. And we get, got in front of every department, all the people in the company, and said, here's where we are, here are the issues, here's where we need to be going, are you on board? Hmm. And that alignment and enrollment process really got people excited. Wow, that's great. If you're going to involve people in a change effort, it takes more energy than just going to work. They're, they essentially become volunteers, even though they're paid, because they're volunteering to put extra time and energy into the initiatives that the change requires above and beyond their daily work. Right. It sounds like it almost calls for some passion. Right? Mm-hmm. Very very much so. That extra energy is the gas that powers the engine of change. Interesting. So, in that example, did all of the managers seem to be able to work together? Did, did some of them end up taking other jobs? How did that yes, work with, out? Uh, within two to three years, um, uh, one retired, but well, that was good. Um, a couple of others left and some others who were sitting, you know, really um, high potential employees stepped up to the table and became leaders themselves. Wow. So it really set up this longer term, again, this longer term engine for success. And there was a whole new style of working together. Um, so, for instance, the CEO said, we're all going to actually now be on the same floor, regardless of the floor where your people are. So it sort of flattens the organization in a way. Yeah. It be, you know, everyone had to actually state what their commitment was. And, of course, there's metrics around that. But the, the emotional energy that it, it took to say, you know, we're closing the executive dining room and we're going to remodel a floor of the building and the senior team, we're going to actually work beside each other so we can learn to talk about things and not just be sending emails. That's it was a very powerful message and the team worked together exceptionally well year after year, um, bringing in and essentially absorbing other companies, making them more and more efficient at that, and they got really good at um, mergers and acquisitions. Wow. So, yeah, that would give them a real competitive advantage because one of the things that I've noticed a lot of companies are doing is things are so specialized today that you can't, one company can't do it all anymore. There were a couple big technology companies that wanted to just try to do everything and eliminate the competition and now they're they're getting much better at buying companies and integrating them but it sounds like this kind of approach would be the only way that it could really work long term unless they just get rid of all the people and keep the i guess the assets of the company and and start from scratch with the people but mm-hmm. um, and quite that, often that doesn't work you know doesn't work either 
M- mergers are like ma- marriages. They only work out half the time. <laughs> and well, and that's a my- terrible, when you think about it, the, that's a terrible destruction of value. <laughs> yes. Awful. Yeah, and I, when I was writing my book, Business Intelligence Success Factors, I found this research that said that the main reason mergers don't work is because of poor communication. And then there was a Gartner study that said 70 to 80% of business intelligence projects fail due to poor communication. So just getting people to talk to each other. In fact, I visited my old high school in July. Um, I went back to my reunion, and I was, we did a tour, and I was talking to the principal, and he had such a forward way of thinking that I want to get him as a guest on my show. He said that they don't let the kids have any technology because they want them to actually communicate with each other and they get to sit together at lunch and talk and they can't be on their phones or anything. They're not allowed to have any of that stuff. And they said it's reduced the bullying and there's a lot better harmony and the kids really seem happy and like each other. So if we can start young and get kids talking to each other, that's um, a real benefit. And yeah. maybe some of that, you know, the the technology I was saying earlier about the technology companies having y- usually younger employees that are more used to this, you know, but I'd be curious to know how they deal with that because they definitely have the technology, but they must be set up somehow to be good at communicating. Do you have any insights around that? Well, what what we see at Idea Champions is that these companies are from the get-go, they're establishing what we call a culture of innovation. Ah. And this has many aspects to it. Uh, Communication, of course, is one of them, but particular types of communication and and invention and having processes um, in place. And certainly, a lot of them we, we talked to are doing like annual competitions. Oh, 48 okay. or 72 hour competition. Some go through the night, some don't. Um, and small teams, two or three people get together and try to invent, you know, a new algorithm or a new marketable service uh, for for their software company. And so these kinds of things happen might happen every Friday and then once or twice a year, and then there are awards. And also some of these things become products. I mean. Certainly Google does this, and I know others. And it's this culture of innovation that I think is the shift that you're talking about between the feeling tone in, the, in these young entrepreneurial um, software and technology companies and sort of the big behemoths that have been around a long time and are having difficulty uh, reinventing themselves. Well, that totally makes sense because the technology companies are sort of new inventions just in the last, say, 15 years, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of the old companies really didn't have to worry about innovation that much because they weren't in this kind of global, fast-changing economy. Um, so I want to maybe after the break get more into innovation. I just wanted to ask you about you're familiar with Toyota and one of the things that they did where they really were very competitive with the U.S. car market because they distributed power. Are you familiar with that model where they created small teams? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That, 
Yeah, so can you talk a little bit about that? Well, of course, they had a head start actually using Deming's quality methodology way before American manufacturers thought it was useful. So Uh they had begun um, actually teaching everyone how to watch for ways to make improvements. I mean, you're talking about a company that makes incredibly reliable cars, have one, (laughs) and and they continually knock off 2% of the cost year after year. Wow. That's sustainable innovation. That's what works so well, and that's what, uh, we can talk about it after the break, but Jim Collins in his new book, Great by Choice, another Mm -hmm. older guy, uh, Ah. you know, his discovery after incredibly in-depth research was it wasn't the most innovative companies that were what he calls 10x companies that mm-hmm. were incredibly profitable and had great stock returns. For him, it was the discipline to make innovation a cultural strength that made the difference. And Toyota has, has done that, and they have stuck to that for the last more than 20 years. And they've made innovation repeatable and scalable and sustainable. And, you know, this is our experience at Idea Champions, this, this is the challenge, really, of creating a culture of innovation. Well, and I know one of the things Toyota did was they created small teams where those teams could make decisions, correct? That they were empowered right. to make small changes and test things and make mistakes. And that's something that I think is a big challenge for companies that are trying to be innovative is they sometimes they can't tolerate mistakes. So we're, we're going to take a break now, but when we come back, I'd really like to expand on this idea of innovation because I think really this is the big challenge that all the linear processes can be automated or outsourced. And if companies aren't innovating, they're, gonna, they're not going to be successful over the long term. So we'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. How can we Americans realize our dreams to earn a living? How can you pursue your dream and make money as an owner or an employee? Learn how at The American Business Person, the online weekly radio talk show hosted by Rich Killian. Today's business leaders share how to succeed and what fails. If you own a new or established business or ever hope to, you must tune in. Join us every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel or listen on demand to our archived shows. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time 
for the leader and the muse and get ready to take your brand to the next level. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, welcome back, and I'm here with my guest, Stephen McHugh, CEO CIO of Idea Champions and CEO of Unison Business Consulting. And before the break, we were talking about innovation and how it really is this thing that many companies need to pursue because everything linear is being in it, just outsourced or automated. So, Stephen, tell me a little bit more about your experience with companies that are doing this well, and what are some of the challenges to being truly innovative? So, I was uh, before the break, we were talking about the Jim Collins' research showing that the, the most successful companies were not necessarily the most innovative in terms of new products and services every year, but they were the most methodical innovators. So, you know, most businesses are happy to be methodical for their bread and butter business systems and, you know, working on processes and process improvement. Um, and they, they sort of leave innovation as a happy accident uh-huh. instead of actually applying that same sort of um, uh, step-by-step or m- methods to actually support innovation culturally. So you, you can get companies like, you know, IBM, when they were developing the first PC, who set up a, a skunk works off-site and then had really a great executive sponsor who protected them until mm-hmm. they could actually have their product done and operating and, and out of the mainstream of the day-to-day business that would have killed them as a project could it have gotten its hands around the neck of that team. So, so it sounds like financial issues are a big constraint to innovation, that a company really needs to be able to put money aside and maybe not see any return for a while. Is that true? Well, for companies that don't actually have an innovation budget, it's, innovation is really a joke in my mm. estimation. <laughs> if there's, um, so for instance, it's, to be able to say to people who are already working 50 to 55, 60 hours a week on the bread and butter business, to say to them, we have this you know, new idea and it's going to take another 15 hours a week work on it, the likelihood that that idea will ever be commercialized is very low. Well, that makes sense. I also know that Companies that are very innovative are higher, they have a higher tolerance for mistakes. Can you talk uh-huh. a little bit about that? Well, you know, we think of a 3M, very innovative company. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, they came in a way they weren't uh, early, in the early days, 
to them, they'll, people can work 20% of their time, which is one day a week, which is a lot, mm-hmm. on, on an innovative idea, and they expect out of 100 of those, uh, 97 won't, won't amount to anything, three will go into commercialization, out of the three, one will lose money, one will break even, and the other one will be a runaway success. And that'll pay for everything, I guess, and that right? pays for everything. Plus, you have established this method and a really methodological approach to innovation. You'd think, how can you have methods to creativity? Well, you know, creativity requires time and space and a kind mm-hmm. of, you know, you may, as a writer, you know, you're unlikely to probably write really well sitting in Grand Central Station. <laughs> That's an understatement. Or, you know, doing your daily work and answering phones. And, you know, over the years at Idea Champions, we've asked people, where do you get your best ideas? And no one has ever said at my desk. Yeah. This is well, actually, I remember... People. What's wrong with that? <laughs> I remember reading about 3M. I'm pretty sure that was the company where they created a room that had this big window that looked out over water and flowers, and they had big, comfortable chairs and headphones with music, and they told their engineers that they should go and sit in that lounge for at least 30 minutes a day. And right. the whole reason was to... I guess wake up their right brain, right? Get them to right. thinking it's, innovatively. It really, it, things like that are really supportive. Then the, the, you were talking about finances. Mm-hmm. I mean, so what does it take for a senior team to actually say, we're going to put this money, this much money away towards the development of new products and services this year, some of which we may not pay back for two or three years. Wow. When, you're, when you've got monthly and quarterly numbers you have to hit. Right. Wow. And I think this is a built-in problem. It's like, you know, Bell Labs, which was an AT&T company way back when, invented the transistor that has entirely changed our lives. Yeah. And who's doing that now? Well, it's the companies that have this culture of innovation and have the the guts, really, to put their money where their mouth is. But also, you have to change all of your people processes, too. Oh, so, so what does that and, look and, like? Well, I was telling you uh, about the chloralkali company, and the, you know, one of the prime people who made these um, visionary changes happen was the HR guy. Wow. And it was because... When you start putting people on inventive projects that are going to go through a commercialization um, assessment, some of these projects, you know, it starts out with a a simple one-inch deep idea, a simple plan, and then you put some money and time and people at it, and they they go and they work on it, and then it becomes a one-foot deep plan, and then... If you're going to actually grow something, it's got to actually get funding. It's just like a startup company within the company. These are intrapreneurs, Mm -hmm. and the HR people have to backfill the roles of the people who are on the new intrapreneurial projects. They have to find new compensation systems. They have to give people completely different rules, essentially, to support the innovation. 
And, wow. You know, that's why I'm saying if the HR people have got to be 100% on board because it requires a lot of innovation from them, and they need to be at the table with the senior team as, as a fully... Uh, you know, fully bona fide decision maker who uh, otherwise you can't actually provide the structure and support of the people whose projects will be one of those three that dies, <laughs> yeah. you know, or the one of the 97 where you put three months into something and then it doesn't fly and then you go, can you go back to your job? Right. Wow. Yeah, very, it reminds me too, just when people, you were saying right? about a, a separate unit inside that that very first credit bar, card bank that I worked for uh, had a test center and they did every single thing that the big bank did from offers to fulfillment mm. and they could do it really quickly and then get rid of the bad ideas. But that was definitely a big expense that they were willing to make and one of the reasons they were so profitable. So that's interesting. Do you know of any companies that are doing that now? Oh, yes. There's, there's a lot of them who are waking up to innovation because, as you pointed out at the beginning of the show, we're now in a global digital economy. And also, you know, consumer sentiment is changing and people want... Uh, more natural products and things like that. And so it's this, this sort of slow um, creation of inspiration to change mm-hmm. and then creating a simple process for innovation, not too complex, but enough structure that there are roles and processes around it. And then building this culture of innovation in a, in a variety of ways from the kind of contest to setting up uh, special shops or um, special teams. And then mm-hmm. it's up to the senior leadership to redesign the organizational structures and the way work is done um, and the processes, you know, and the systems that can support innovation, especially in human resources. Well, let me just say we have about a little bit over a minute left, so if you want to just share a little bit about what you do at Idea Champions, and then um, we'll wrap up. Well, we really are in support of this, what we call the innovation journey. Mm -hmm. We have about 30 seconds. (laughs) uh, You know, it's unique to each company, but it has the same kind of um, steps and support around creating a culture of innovation. And that's, that's the key piece in the long run to make innovation sustainable. Oh, thank you. Well, it looks like we're about out of time. Stephen, thank you so much for being my guest today. I hope you will come back. I will. Thanks so much for hosting me. You're welcome. So next week, we're going to explore complexity with Denise Easton of the Complexity Space. Be sure to check my host page on Voice America for full details. I'm your host, Olivia Parood. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.